Hey listeners, Chloe here. If you need to stay as up-to-date with the latest developments and innovations in the luxury industry as I do, you need to dive into Vogue Business. It's your ticket to a global perspective on fashion and beauty, delivering exclusive insights that will give you the edge in this competitive, dynamic industry. Just visit VogueBusiness.com today and use the code RUN20 at checkout to join the Vogue Business community. That's VogueBusiness.com, promo code RUN20. Don't miss out. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. This is The Run-Through. I'm Chloe Mel. And I'm Cho Minardi. Choma, are you scared of sharks? Yes. <laughs> is someone not scared of sharks? I guess that's fair. That's fair. Have you? Would you? Would you willingly go swimming with sharks? No, but I think they're cool. Like I'm very pro shark. I just don't need to be mouth. with sharks. That craggy mouth. Okay, this was all just to get us to okay. the point that we're having right. a shark week. Okay, let's put that to one side. And because it's fashion week and it's the most wonderful time of the year, <laughs> um, we are doing a whopping seven episodes. Fun. All through Fashion Week, and we have such exciting interviews planned and visits to different shows and reports live from I'm the buckling field. Up. Yes, so get ready. <laughs> get ready to swim with sharks, Choma, because we're going in. Our Shark Week is starting on September 7th, and we are powering through Fashion Week, and everyone dive in the waters. It's going to be a splashy time. It's going to be a splashy time. We're, we're making a splash. We're making a splash. <laughs> drip, drip. <laughs> Speaking of Shark Week, let's dive right in, Joma. So I had a really fun conversation with Marissa Meltzer, who is a veteran beauty, lifestyle, fabulous, all-around uh, journalist, writer, and she has just written— Also a- my yoga teacher. Oh! I forgot about that. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. She's a very great yoga Exciting, teacher. Exciting. Recommend. Uh, all right. She has written a book uh, called— Glossy, Ambition, Beauty, and the Inside Story of Emily Weiss's Glossier. And Glossier is, of course, a beauty brand that took the world by millennial pink storm in 2014. And I personally reported on Glossier and Emily Weiss, and we all followed the ascent of that. And the book's really fun because to me, it's just, it's sort of, sort of been fascinated how this one startup, especially a beauty brand, could sort of encapsulate so many strands of the mm. cultural zeitgeist of like, you know, girl bosses, a terrible term. Yes, and hate that term. The rise of like venture backed to direct to consumer mm. products and beauty and unicorn venture backed firms, which is like a billion dollar valuation mm. and sort of creating community via Instagram. They just, it sort of taps into all of these moments that I feel like were very emblematic of a time. And Marissa does a great job of unpacking that and working through it. In I the read book. it in one sitting on the plane. Did you? Yeah. Oh my God. So fun. I know me too. I was like, I was oh, like, oh, I only have time to skim this. And then I ended up reading the whole thing. Yeah. So, yes, um, Marissa and I had a really fun conversation and I'm excited for you to hear it. I'd like to welcome you, Marissa, to <laughs> our show. We are very excited to have you and was hoping that you could maybe introduce yourself to our listeners. I'm a, I'm a writer and I 
have been writing about beauty, but also fashion and culture and celebrity profiles. And I've written for Vogue. I write for The New York Times a lot and had, you know, followed Emily Weiss as a person and as a company owner since, I guess, since The Hills era when she had her little super intern cameo, but then more formally um, when she launched Into the Gloss, her beauty blog, and um, written profiles about Glossier. And so, you know, I I was thinking, I want to write a book about beauty, and I think Glossier should be the kind of central thread. And then, you know, once I started writing and thinking about it more, it was like, oh, no, this this book is about Glossier. And— for people who don't know, mm-hmm. what is Glossier? And then I feel like to answer that question, you have to sort of also tell us what Into the Gloss was. Yeah, well, okay. Or is God? I said was. See, it's uh, just, it feels. <laughs> if you know, you know why that's a complicated thing. <laughs> Basically, I would say that Glossier is the millennial beauty brand. And it started out D to C. Which means this, what? Oh, sorry. Yeah, it started out direct to consumer. Which means that instead of being able to buy it at Nordstrom or Dwayne Reed or anything, you could only— Or Sephora, which you now can. Or or Sephora, where you now can, (laughs) you had to order it from them. And they came in beautiful kind of millennial pink, like soft pink packaging. And the products were, you know, quite smartly— priced somewhere between drugstore prices and department store prices. So it felt a little aspirational. And the most interesting part was that it that it was born from this company into the gloss, which is a blog, a beauty blog, and was probably the most famous beauty blog in the kind of heyday of fashion and beauty blogs and bloggers. And they had this signature column called Top Shelf. And it would be, did you ever do one, Chloe? I did. And I actually went back last night and read it. And I almost don't want to bring it up because it's so mortifying. And I think that <laughs> okay. me saying that is going to make people Google it. But you can always cut this is... out. You can, we could just stop. No, no, no. I, no. It's, <laughs> it's fine. I've got to be all out there. But I, I mean, it was fully, it was exactly 10 years ago. And I mm-hmm. just sound like such a moronic baby. I mean, and some of the things are truly just cringe inducing. But but that might always be true about interviews people do. I, I don't do a lot of interviews. Of, I don't get interviewed a lot myself. So I I just reading it, I was just like, oh, what is wrong with you? But anyway. Well, it's hard uh, to I did do, do an one. interview about – I mean, so the top shelf was kind of people talking about what they use for hair, face, makeup, you know, beauty it's routines. Kind of crazy because I looked at the pictures. First of all, I mean, you talk about this really well in the book that like Emily I, I think is brilliant in a lot of ways. And I think one way was she found maybe – Maybe it was lucky. Maybe it was she stumbled upon it. But I think she sort of knew that this was a key into the inner sanctum of powerful women. Yeah. I mean, I mean not she myself, says as but much. like Kim Kardashian, Ariana Huffington. Like she would, she comes alone to your house. She sits on your bed or in your bathroom with you. And she, I mean, I looked at the photos and I almost gasped when I saw like a picture of like all my toiletries strewn on my vanity. Cause mm-hmm. it, it's almost like, having your underwear shown. It's this very intimate thing. I'm like, oh, I forgot that I showed all of that. There is something disarming about someone that would just come to your bathroom and be like, what's this? Or, you know, what do you use here? And you probably say, you know, stuff that you you might 
not otherwise if you were like coming to um, a conference room to talk about your beauty routine. I do think that recently on the show, we talked about newsletters being the new magazines and sure. sort of the New York Times article and how Lauren Sherman was talking about that and all these very smart, editorially minded women who are sending newsletters and are making a lot of money through affiliate links. Mm-hmm. And I suddenly was like, Emily was on, at the forefront of that trend too. I mean, she could have been making a fortune on affiliate links. Like I, she linked to every product. I don't think she was. Do you think she was? I don't think she was because I think maybe it was kind of before that stuff was codified as much as it is now. God, she would have made a fortune on that. Like she just always sort of really, um, you could say cynically she was in the right place at the right time, but I think she made her own luck and she's a very determined, very uh, ambitious, clear-minded person. And I I am quite impressed with that. Yeah, I think that's one of the questions in the book is, is Emily Weiss, you know, a smart, beautiful girl who was in the right place in the right time and knew the right people? Or, you know, is she like a business visionary that you know, made her first company worth $1.8 billion by the time she was in her early 30s. Or it it can be both. I was going to say, or it's both. The former can supplement the latter. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Will you tell us a little bit about who Emily is for people who don't know? I feel like we've been talking in a shorthand, but maybe. Sure. Yeah, of course. So Emily Weiss grew up in Connecticut and was this kind of hyper-ambitious teen that is kind of like a type that you don't see a lot for women in pop culture. And, for example, she was babysitting for a neighbor, and the neighbor worked for Ralph Lauren, and she said, I love your kids, but I'd really love an internship at Ralph Lauren. (laughs) So... She spun that into interning at Teen Vogue in kind of its heyday. And then she graduated from NYU and worked in fashion a bit, um, working for a stylist, working at W and doing work for Vogue. And then got this idea um, that she wanted to, you know, talk about beauty in the way that fashion blogs were talking about fashion. And that's how Into the Glass started. And after a few years of Into the Gloss, she founded Glossier, which was this beauty brand kind of using that info of obsessives and what people were asking for and what kind of, you know, beauty was resonating with people to develop products. Tell us about why Glossier, what was revolutionary about it? Because what I think is brilliant about you choosing to do this story is it it is, I mean, as you mentioned briefly, the Glossier moment, it really encapsulated so many strands of the culture. It was like the rise of the girl boss, which is a horrible term. And I really wish we could just put it to bed. I know. Um, But it, it, but it's, it's for those of us who were in the girl boss trenches reading about it, 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 you know, it's a certain shorthand for, I feel like that became like my beat for a while. It's like, (laughs) It was every. Girl it was everyone's beat. Yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, so it was sort of the rise of the venture capital-backed direct-to-consumer brands, the shift of the appeal of products from just things to being things that signify this personal value and this identity as part of a community, which I think Emily 
I mean, you could argue that there are a lot of people who epitomize that, but Emily, I think, really tapped into... There were so many brands that tried to create a community after creating a product, Mm -hmm. and Emily either knew ahead of time or really knew how to leverage what she had already created with a community from Into the Gloss into these people who are just breathless to get a hand on these products. I mean, it was just a fascinating phenomenon. They really treated beauty as almost the way that streetwear drops were yeah. kind of at the time. They they already had this community of people that were really obsessed with Into the Gloss. I mean, you know, every post had tons of comments and commenters commenting on comments and asking questions. And they also did brilliant things like every order came with stickers and they came in this pink bubble wrap pouch that, you know, you could and should reuse. So, I mean, I literally had have gone through security at an airport and taken, you know, some of my like toiletries or whatever out in the pouch. And there's another girl who's taking hers out and you kind of like point at each other and and laugh. Yeah, it's a very I've been on yoga retreats where, you know, (laughs) there were probably like 30 pouches going around, you know. Wow. The, The teens, the 20 teens could be distilled in the story of Glossier. And I think you did a brilliant job of looking at that. And I'm curious your take on the sort of the rise of the girl boss, the death of the girl boss, the sort of girl boss gotcha exposés. Mm-hmm. Why did Emily survive that moment? Yeah, she was pretty unscathed. I think some of that comes back to community that there was always this into the Gloss and Glossier community, and she and, you know, her fellow employees were very accustomed to listening to their customers and using that feedback and integrating it to the company and its, you know, the way that it used customer service or product development. And so I think they were at a little bit of an advantage to responding to criticism. Um, I also think that... None of it was criminal, for example. You know, there was it was I was not writing this book thinking that it was going to be anything like bad blood or like the WeWork story. And right. so it it was never an issue of whether, you know, Glossier was doing something really horrible, but there was this thirst in that era to take these women who had been kind of highlighted as young, you know, photogenic founders of kind of women-driven companies like um, Audrey Gelman at The Wing and Emily were probably two of the most famous. And so when Glossier had its out-of-the-gloss racial recognition, I think that their response to it was very thoughtful. It wasn't anything lobbed against Emily Weiss in particular. It was more about kind of the treatment of um, retail employees and how how race in the company was kind of looked at. It was a more— How there were only three shades of the original Right. Like, it was kind of a—it wasn't so much about a certain inciting incident or anything like that. And so Glossier made, I think, a very smart decision, which was they donated money, but then they also set up a kind of uh, an incubator for— 
founders who are black identified and beauty. And they not only gave them money, but they gave them a huge amount of mentorship. And so I think, you know, like everything that Emily Weiss does, she's very thoughtful about it. And so I think she was able to, for the most part, be unscathed, but she was a target and she wasn't perfect. Right. Well, none of us are. None I mean, of us I, are. You know, yeah. I, you, you point this out, but I do think it's important that, like, these, quote, girl bosses were held to an unimaginable standard. Yeah. I mean, if you look at some of the, you know, most famous, like, tech founders or anything today, you know, the kind of behavior that not only is tolerated, but they're, like, boasting about in, you know, yes. their books. It would never fly for a woman. I mentioned even just... There's a New York Times interview with the man who founded Peloton, and he just mentions offhandedly that he, like, takes 40 sips of water from the faucet first thing in the morning. And that's the kind of thing that would absolutely haunt Ty from Outdoor Voices or Leandra (laughs) or Emily or anything. Like, there would be memes about it, you know. And it's something so minor. You know, I think it's really important for people to think about that kind of, um, I don't know, that like bloodthirstiness or something and the way that we, you know, find any little thing from a woman leader irritating or potentially kind of cancelable when we put up with so much and even celebrate it when it comes to men. The run-through will be back in just a moment. I'm Celeste, and I'm here with Jade and Emily, and we are so excited to announce our new show, After Hours. We're three female founders who became friends through, well, trauma bonding over entrepreneurship. These days, we come together after work to discuss the highs, lows, and hilarious moments we all experience as we build our companies in our 20s as first-time founders. We're dishing advice, spilling secrets we wish we knew so you don't have to make the same mistakes we did, oversharing in the best ways, giving our legal teams anxiety, and peeling back the curtains behind startup life. So close your computers, we know it's hard, and pour yourself a glass of something, because After Hours is now in session. This podcast is supported by Macy's. Mother's Day is May 12th, and Macy's has the perfect gift guide to make picking something for mom easy this year. Shop by price, 25 and under to 100 and under, category like fragrances and handbags, or gift lists like for the mom who has everything or for grandma. Macy's has all the hottest gift ideas like Beats headphones, Polaroid cameras, Samsung smart TVs, and more. Go to macy's.com slash gift finder to shop. That's macy's.com slash gift finder today. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Maybe a chef-grade range made you want to hone your cooking skills, or a high-tech tennis racket made you want to work on your backhand. I recently bought a new pair of running shoes, and that made me love hitting the pavement again. Well, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. 
And we're back with Marissa Meltzer. You know, are they doing well still? Like, what is the Um, business report? Well, you know, they're privately held still. So, you know, they're never going to reveal those numbers, which usually means that, you know, they're not super profitable. But Emily stepped down as CEO about a year, a little over a year ago. And everyone there is, you know, kind of a Harvard Business School blue chip you know, kind of person with a lot of serious work experience. And they quite methodically, you know, went into Sephora, relaunched some new products. And I think that they're thinking of this phase as kind of a reintroduction, like Second Life for Glossier. But, you know, one of the things that Emily did that was probably a misstep was not selling when the, you know, market was hot in brands like Tatcha or Drunk Elephant or Charlotte Tilbury sold for, you know, huge, you know, billion-dollar close deals. And that seems to be a little bit of a thing of the past. Um, It's so interesting. I think you're right. But, like, I I remember I did a story on beauty unicorns uh, in May 2019. Mm -hmm. And it's all those brands have sold. It's all you said. It's like Tasha, Drunk Elephant, Charlotte Tilbury. And I remember interviewing Emily for that. And she was like, I'm just not interested in that right now. I don't need that. Mm -hmm. I don't want that. And I wonder if she... I think she wanted to be that brand. Part of Emily's sort of evolution from kind of cool downtown blogger to this kind of, you know, CEO is that she wanted to be that kind of female Steve Jobs Right. figure and kind of remade herself a little bit in the image of that. And I think she wanted, you know, Glossier to be that kind of Nike brand where it was like, we're a lifestyle brand that begins with beauty. And that's what I thought was, I mean, you mentioned this too, but she she said this a few times. She said this to me. She was like, I don't associate us with other beauty brands. I associate us with Apple and Nike, and that's what I want to be. And I remember I went back and looked at my notes after reading this, and she, you know, it was in there super swanky sort of mm-hmm. Barbie meets Bond villain lair on yeah. Spring Street. Yeah. And it was like this huge office designed by this amazing designer, right. Rafael de Cardenas. Was, and yeah. there was a fish tank. and Yeah, there was like the most beautiful floral arrangements everywhere. Oh, gorgeous. And she was in like a striped Balenciaga blouse and she had her Cartier bangles. And I've always found Emily to be extremely polite, engaging, compelling. And and I, you write about this, Kristen Green, her main investor, writes about this, like, Emily asks questions. And as you know, as an interviewer, like, it's very rare when you interview someone that they actually ask you any questions. And so I'm always struck yeah. by that. Um, but the first thing she said, she was like, you know, I've spent a lot of time thinking, are we a tech company or a beauty company? And I think we are an experience company. I was like, wow, you are so on message. And it just, she, it seemed like she had a vision. And I wonder if that vision petered out a little bit when she stepped down from CEO or if that vision just shifted. I'm not sure. I think that, you know, it's easy to have a vision. It's easy to say, you know, we think of ourselves in the class of Nike and, you know, Apple instead of beauty companies. But the reality was they were and are a beauty company. Like, they never did develop this kind of 
app that they were sinking a lot of money into but was very nebulous. And I think that what happened is that they had to kind of come down to earth, especially in light of pandemic and, you know, economic uncertainty and kind of humbled themselves and say, we are a beauty company and we do that well. And and that's a huge business. Exactly. And And so I think that's kind of their refocus now is like, we're a beauty company. You can buy us at Sephora. I think they're probably burnishing themselves up to look good to, with an eye to a possible sale. That would be my guess. But, you know, if there's anything about Glossier is that (laughs) they keep you guessing because they're a company unlike any other. Well, and tellingly, a very small percentage of venture funding goes to women. And and I learned from the book, I never heard of the lipstick effect before. Oh, you had but it? It's a, no, it's a great phrase. Will you explain yeah. what that is? It was um, one of the, I forget which lauder, but one of the lauders of Estee Lauder coined it. The lipstick effect was basically why beauty companies, even in times of recession or economic uncertainty, did well. Because Lipstick was like this affordable luxury that, you know, maybe you weren't going on a lavish vacation, maybe you weren't buying crazy shoes or going out to dinner, but you could still get, say, like a Chanel or Dior lipstick to like lift your spirits in tough times and that, you know, beauty companies really reaped the benefit of that. And yeah, I mean, one reason why I wanted to write the book was – thinking about there was like a Forbes list of richest self-made women and like six of the 10 of them were, you know, all or partially because of beauty lines. And, you know, as people that work in media like us, we know that like beauty is a huge advertiser and that, you know, Dior is making way more money on their lipstick line than, like, couture or even ready-to-wear. But I don't think everyone, you know, quite realized that. And that was part of my desire to, like, write about this this super powerful world where there's so much money involved. Yeah. So I, as a fellow profile writer, was extremely interested and sort of uh, shaken by— the beginning of the book where you meet Emily at the Crosby Hotel and she breaks down in tears and she's very concerned. She says, you know, every day you wake up and think about the fact that you're writing a book. Every day I wake up and think about the fact that someone is writing a book about me. And you have this very interesting sort of personal um, qualm that you talk about. And you mentioned this sort of the devastating Janet Malcolm quote that every journalist who's not too stupid or full of himself to notice what's going on knows that what he's doing is morally indefensible. And I just wonder, was there a moment where you were like, ah, I don't want to do this or I'm uncomfortable doing this? I mean, you actually say that. You say, without putting it bluntly, I wondered if I was being an asshole. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think I wondered – more, I kind of wanted it to go away. I wanted to like um, either be done with the book or to be done with my feelings of whether or not I was being a jerk. When I started the book, and it was really about, you know, beauty sort of larger, she immediately signed on to, you know, be interviewed for it, as did, you know, other people at Glossier and other people all over the place. And as it changed, I 
I felt like I was being pretty open with, you know, her and and PR and they didn't ask a lot of questions. And I don't know if that's just because they were dealing with a lot of their own internal issues at the time. Timing-wise, probably, you know, it was in the kind of tail end of the pandemic. And then, you know, when the title of the book came out and, you know, the cover of the book is very Glossier Pink, um, I think Emily felt pretty, I don't know, maybe a little like she hadn't been informed you know, she felt a little devastated, I think. And I certainly had to deal with those feelings. I think there's never an easy answer to being a writer and writing about something and feeling like I'm writing about them, but they're not writing about me. And, you know, that's something that has probably been a question since, you know, the beginning of the profile or biography. But I just kept coming back to the fact that I'm very nuanced in my writing and I was always rooting for Glossier and that this was a really important part of, like, women's history that needed to be written, you know, that there are so many stories about men in business, and there are so few about women, and there are so few about companies that are sort of, you know, by and large for women by women, and that I thought their story really needed to be told, and that I really wanted to tell it. And I also think that, and maybe you do feel one way or the other, but I think you very uh, convincingly and deftly do not fall on either the side of Emily is a corporate villain, Emily is a charismatic wonderkind. You you don't really seem to have to share your opinion of, of Emily. Was that ever challenging to sort of walk that middle road? I mean, no, because I think I, I that middle road is, is where I land. I okay. think that in some ways my editors and publisher would like it if the book had landed really firmly into some kind of elevator pitch that's like the woman who founded Glossier is a corporate villain or like Glossier is the best company and deserves, you know, no wrath or anything like that. But, you know, that's just – I I think most things are more nuanced than that and Emily Weiss – is a complicated person, and so is her company. And so I think that for me, the kind of most feminist thing that I thought I could do in telling her story was just to absolutely refuse to oversimplify it. Uh, well, congratulations. Thank you. Um, I'm so excited for you. I'm so excited for the book. And see you soon. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with Shark Week starting September 7th. Tune in and never tune out. The Run Through of Vogue is a production of Condé Nast Entertainment. The show is produced by Susie Lechtenberg, Chelsea Daniel, and Alex John Burns. It's engineered by Jake Loomis, Gabe Kiroga, and Kevin Burasa, and mixed by Mike Kutchman. See you soon. Bye. Hi. 
Hi, we're Carlene and Jill, hosts of Breaking Beauty Podcast, the show all about the breakthrough people, products, and moments in beauty. On our show, you're going to find hella inspiring guests like Emily Weiss of Glossier, and you'll get beauty tips galore from the top pros in the industry, like Kim Kardashian's makeup guru, and you'll hear skincare secrets from the likes of Dr. Pimple Popper. Plus, you'll get shopping help with our Damn Goods episodes, where we review the latest products hitting store shelves to let you know what's actually worth your money. Listen every Wednesday to Breaking Beauty Podcast. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at betterhelp.com. That's betterhelp.com.